So hey guys, welcome back. We got another one. Um, today we have Matt Fitzsimons. Uh, he's an author and a writer and a historian and a filmmaker and you're going to love his story. Uh, of course, I want to thank my friends over at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. You can find them at tombstoneepitaph.com. And I want to thank my second family at the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. Um, this year's Roundup 2023 is going to be in San Antonio, Texas, and we're going to be visiting the Alamo and we're going to be cruising all over San Antonio. So if you want to join this group, this, this group, this crazy group of historians and researchers that love factual history, go to wildwesthistory.org. It's about 75 bucks a year and you get the journal and you get to connect with like-minded people. Uh, if you want to meet like your favorite authors like John Bosnecker, Peter Brand, they're all there. And they're all members of the Wild West History Association. And uh, it gives you a chance to connect with them and talk to them and, and, uh, and get to know them a little bit. And also connect with other researchers and historians and people like us that like true factual history, not made up stuff, but true factual history. And again, you can find them at wildwesthistory.org. You can also go to YouTube, check out their YouTube page. They have a Facebook page and my good friend, David Guyton, he's running the Instagram page. So you can be covered in Western history on all forms of social media just by going to wildwesthistory.org or on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram. And you're going to love everything that you're going to see. So today's guest, um, today's podcast is uh, with a gentleman named uh, Matt Fitzsimons. I saw his book cover go through, I think Eric Wright uh, did a, um, didn't Eric do like a little thing about you in the epitaph? Yes, he did. He did give me a great write-up and um, even a little interview. So you did this interview and then what usually happens is, I'll read these interviews from Eric or I'll see a blurb from Eric and I'm like, oh my God, I got to know more about this guy. I got to know more about his book. I got to know more about his background or about the story. And I love to hear it in the, obviously in the voice of the researcher, but get some of the background. Uh, he's written a book called The Counterfeiters of the Bosque Redondo. I got it right, right? Bosque Redondo? Yeah, counter the counterfeiters of Bosque Redondo. There you go. Okay. So, and slavery, you, silver, and the U.S. war against the Navajo Nation. There you go. And you can find it on Amazon. It's twenty around $22. It's 160 pages. It's got uh, pictures on the inside. And, uh, and really, you know, if you're in Europe or Australia or anywhere in the States, you know, going through Amazon is probably the best bet because uh, shipping is next to nothing, and you can get it right to your door. You don't have to leave the house. You can get it right to your door. Um, but it's just a it's it's a crazy great cover. We're going to talk about the cover, too, in a little bit. Um, and I've read a little bit about the book through reviews. And welcome, welcome, Matt. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and um, you mentioned Eric. I really appreciate the write-up he gave me in the Tombstone Epitaph. It was really neat to be in that paper, given that it's just his connection to the history of the West. Yeah, he's he's just a good dude. And we talk, and I've interviewed uh, Eric as well, and he's just got a cool story, and he's living in Arkansas and just doing it right with a, a fantastic family. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it, it was great, too, because uh, the epitaph being founded by uh, John Clooman, Indian agent, uh, worked with the Apache. And, of course, uh, the, the Apache, along with the Navajo, were... Um, the Mescalero Apache were part of the um, Bosque Redondo experiment that failed. Wow. Thank you for additional information. Um, tell us about you. You, you mentioned in a, in a pre-interview uh, this morning and yesterday about being a filmmaker. Well, you know, what do you do for a living? What do we need to know about you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I started out as a newspaper reporter. I spent about uh, 10 years um, covering crime and courts on the, on the East coast, primarily in New York state. And, um, and I've been doing, we, I run a small film production company with my sister here in San Diego, California. And, uh, we do mostly uh, documentary work for nonprofits and hospitals. Um, the book is more closely related probably to my journalism experience, um, as well as my interest in history. So how, how did you go from, because this is, um, we laughed yesterday, this book 
is his most amazing work. Like it is the yeah, best my first, my, book. It's, it's my first and my best. Um, your first, but, uh, and it's it, the best one well, you've ever written. Yeah. Well, what, what happened was I was originally, um, just sniffing around in history. Um, when I get curious about something, I tend to dig deep and go to the primary sources, just having a journalism background. And I came across a counterfeiting operation that happened at a prison camp um, called Bosque Redondo. And um, for those who don't know what happened, it was in 1863, um, in the midst of the Civil War, the U.S. Army, really one general in New Mexico territory, Carlton, decided to um, move the entire Navajo Nation about 400 miles east. Um, and the reason um, cited at the time was Navajo raids on the settlements. Um, what we get into in the book is that that's not really the case. Um, if you look at the evidence, um, the Navajo actually weren't really doing raids. What raids there were were reprisals, mainly for, for slave raids. Um, their two women and children were being kidnapped on a regular basis and sold into the slavery, slave system of New Mexico. Um, to work as household servants in the, in the settlements. Um, but even then, within the Civil War, there wasn't really that much aggression. The real motive, as Carlton made clear in his letters privately to Washington, was gold. He, he was under the same illusion as the conquistadors were 300 years earlier, that somewhere in Navajo country were vast reserves of gold. Um, and so that's why he had them moved. And they had a series of forced marches in 1863 and 1864, in which uh, over 8,000 people, men, women, and children, were marched often through the dead of winter to Fort Sumner and Bosque Redondo. So can I ask, because I, it it just came to mind, the the wealth and the gold that was supposed to be at Navajo Nation, is that what the movie McKenna's Gold was based upon? That gold riches that was in Canyon de Chez? Uh, there, uh, really was no vast rows of gold. It was all imagined, right. just existed in Carlton's head. Um, cool. it was all for nothing. And, you know, a couple thousand people died as a result. Um, and what I became interested in is during the four years of incarceration at Bosque Redondo, um, the prisoners were often starving. The Carlton had expected there was probably three or 4,000 people and instead over 8,000 people ended up there. Mm. The ground simply couldn't support them and um and it was wartime so rations were running in short supply so people were starving to death dysentery ran through the camp the river the pecos river often ran alkalines you couldn't grow crops and sometimes even the animals wouldn't drink out of it and it was just a horrific situation and um the way they controlled food rations at the time was to issue tickets um little cardboard tickets and each uh each man would come up and present the ticket and get rations for his family. Um, and it wasn't enough. Carlton kept cutting the amount that each ticket would get you till it was down to almost nothing. People were starving to death. It was so bad that one of the camp's commanding officers, Henry Wallen, at one point refused to follow orders and lifted the rations back up because people were starving to death. But, but Carlton just kept doing the math and kept cutting it. And a funny thing happened. The soldiers began to realize at some point that they were collecting more of these tickets than they had issued. They were getting these tickets back that were perfectly counterfeited. Um, and they said, okay, well, let's, let's change this. Let's switch to metal tickets. And so they switched these 10 tickets that they stamped out. Um, and sure enough, within no time, those were being perfectly duplicated. They had more of those than they had started with. Um, thousands of them, about 3,000 of them in all, at least, were duplicated during that time, um, feeding all these people. And so, that became interest to me. This, how the, how did that happen? And it turned out as I looked into it that it happened in the, a blacksmith shop that the soldiers had built, um, planning to have the Navajo, put the Navajo to work, making bridles and tools, things like that. Um, and that's where it happened because the guy who was running the blacksmith shop was this gentleman, uh, Herrero Delgadito. And he happens to be known in the art world as the very first Navajo silversmith. Um, I don't know if that's the case. I think a lot of people were engaging in smithing around the same time in the 1850s or so. Um, but he is certainly the most important silversmith of that era, and not just for the reasons of the art. Um, in addition to running this counterfeiting operation um, and getting all the extra food for the starving prisoners, he was one of the main leaders during the war with the U.S. in the run-up to it. Uh, Bar he's the brother of Barbancito, the great orator 
who ultimately was able to secure their release from Bosque Redondo in 1868. So as I looked into him, the fact he was the first Navajo silversmith became the least interesting thing about him. (laughs) Can I I ask you, though, before you get too deep into it? Sure. One of the things that I'm curious about when I interview the researchers and historians is their research. Were the files easily found? Did you have to go places or was it all online research? Or did you have to go and dig down into county records and Navajo records? And like, tell us about your research. Yes. Well, that's a great question. So um, I try to rely as much as possible on primary source material. In fact, I, hopefully one of the things the readers will like is I excerpt directly a lot from primary source material. Um, I thought, frankly, the voice of the folks, both both Navajo and the Americans, were so interesting. I prefer to read that stuff. So I, I just like to hear their language and hear the generals speak for themselves. And so I excerpt a lot of that directly. Um, some of that comes from the National Archives. I did do some digging there. It is amazing how much you can find online. And I will say one thing that was hugely helpful for me is the, is the fact that so many of these records are digital now. Um, you know, it would be... I can't even imagine uh, how I would have been able to do this if, if I hadn't been able to do digital searches. But for example, now you can go through the entire um, bicameral report on the condition of the Indian tribes from the 1860s, which has hundreds and hundreds of pages just to the appendix. And, um, and you can, in a matter of minutes, do a search by name or date or whatever you want. And so that became critical. Um, particularly as I began to look into Delgadito and search for him, because the amazing thing about him is he pops up everywhere. He pops up in meetings and he shows up in tents and meeting with American officials in the 1850s. Um, he shows up again uh, during the Navajo attack on Fort Defiance when they had finally had enough. Um, and he shows up throughout the long walk period. Um, he became the primary um, go-between between the Navajo and, and General Carlton. Um, and when he finally negotiated his surrender and agreed to come in after Kit Carson's scorched earth campaign, in which they destroyed all their food stores and slaughtered their sheep, um, he surrendered on one condition. He made a deal with Carlton that um, he would he would surrender and he would encourage others to surrender if Carlton freed the slaves from the settlements. And um, and they ended up sending soldiers out to a couple settlements in in 1864. And did in fact free 95 women and children. I shouldn't say free, however. They weren't really free. They were now prisoners of the U.S. Army and headed to Bosque Redondo, where they remained until 1868. As as you were doing the research, did you do? Did you go out to the Navajo reservation and speak oh, yes. to elders? So tell Absolutely. Me, that, that would be amazing because 1865, 1868. You're telling me is about the time period, correct? Yes, absolutely. So there would, have, um, you know, there would have been second oh, generations that would have known the stories, third generation. Oh, absolutely. One, uh, I had several um, sources, including a couple of descendants of Delgadito and Barbancito. One of those, um, you, you and your listeners can all hang out with Adam Teller. He's um, he's great great grandson of Barbancito, and he's also a Navajo guide at Canyon de Che. Um, Barbancito and Delgadito were from there, actually, um, actually just outside of there. And, um, but Adam Teller, Antelope House Tours, um, is, is your man, your go-to for on the ground guide. And he was unbelievable. I got, I have to say too, I think a lot of, um, non-natives, when they hear about, um, Navajo oral history or Native American oral history, they tend to think it's, it's less accurate than our written histories, but I think the opposite is true. I'll say this after spending a year digging through primary source material. I think the Navajo oral histories are more accurate than a lot of the books, a lot of the Mm -hmm. books. A lot of the books have been written in a way to kind of frame Carlton or Kit Carson in the best possible light. You know, they they say this stuff like they portray Kit Carson as a reluctant warrior. Um, You know, it's really not true. I mean, Carson, Carson weaponized slavery against the Navajo. He was paying his mercenaries. He allowed them to keep the women and children that they captured um, during the attack. And and this is six months after Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. You have Carson 
weaponizing slavery against the Navajo. So there, there's just a lot of myths that appear in the books and, and things that were done to make think, people look a little better than they probably were. Um, whereas talking to Adam, Adam would give me, he'd say, so I'll give you an example. Delgadito and Barbancito had another brother, Sordo. And, um, and he, Adam told me he was killed in the first days of the war, right around the time Carson and them made their, their final assault on Canyon de Chez. And he told me that the Americans had mutilated him and uh, mutilated the body. And I thought, okay. And so I went looking and over time, sure enough, I found the actual report. There was an actual report that was filed by the army at the time. And it did in fact say that Sordo was killed and that he was scalped by by volunteers in the Union Army, the Mexican soldiers. So um, so once again, and it was right, it actually happened the same, just day, a day or two after Carson arrived at the canyon. It was striking how accurate it is, and that, and that happened again and again. So I think that speaks to the care um, with which each generation has taken what they've learned from the folks before them and passed it on. And um, it's striking to me because we live in this era, right, where news will ricochet around the internet and get distorted in like, you know, 20 minutes. And, um, and here it is 160 years later and Adam's telling me things and I go and I find him writing a report exactly as he described. Unbelievable. So you, let me ask you about Adam. Did you yes. pre-email him first or did you show up at a tour and go, hi? And how was he, <laughs> was he open? Was he, was he like excited that finally somebody was going to tell the truth in his story or tell it accurately? Like what was the initial meeting like? Um, that's a great question. Well, because I'm a journalist, I, I tend to just reach out to people ahead of time. Go, Hey, here's what I'm doing. Um, and, and that's what I did with Adam and Adam has been, he, you know, I'm not the first person Adam's talked to. He, he's well known. He's been a tour guide he, um, he's in his fifties now, like me, and he's been a tour guide since I think he was 13 years old. So he's the man. He knows everything. And again, Antelope House Tours, highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, he was eager to talk to me. Um, uh, you know, at the same time, I think he was, he's eager to tell the story. I think understandably, he sometimes wonders how it's going to get portrayed. Um, because, you know, this history has been distorted over and over and over again. Um, so I understand that. I understand that completely. But um, but Adam's incredible. And he definitely, he's always willing to share the history and tell the truth. And he's working on his own book now about the history of the Navajo people. So he, he, he welcomed you with open arms. Did you make multiple trips out there or... Was there just an initial greet, initial greeting, or did you spend like a week out there? Oh no! I mean, I can't even tell. We've had we've had so much correspondence back and forth. I mean, Adam was incredible. I would email him when I would find stuff in the process and be like, "Look at this," and you know, I, I also share stuff that I find. Um, you know, you know, when I'm, I think it's important to apply certain special rules when I'm doing this kind of reporting, and that's to be extremely transparent with all the native sources about what's going on. And that's also to share things I find with them immediately. I keep my cards close to the vest. Um, so we had a lot of back and forth, even besides the, the time I spent out there at the Canyon. And I brought my daughter with me too. She had a great time exploring. It's just beautiful. It's, it really is one of the most beautiful places on earth. If, if people aren't familiar with the Canyon, Google it, look it up. It's just unbelievable. And I highly recommend you get down on the floor. You get, a lot of people just drive around the rims and that is gorgeous. It's beautiful, but get down on the Canyon floor. And for that, you, you need a Navajo guide. It is jointly operated by the National Park Service and, and Navajo tribal parks. And, um, you need a Navajo guide to go down on the ground. Yeah. Like I've been through Ken's tours out of page and gone into Antelope Canyon and the canyons, you know, the tours, Oh, you know, yep. it's, it's one thing to see it in a photo and then it's, and drive by it and you look at it and you're like, Oh, that's a crack on the ground. But once you get down on the inside, it's, it's mind boggling. It's sensory oh. overload. And I, so I, I've got Antelope house tours written down. I'll, I'll put them on my, on my it, travel. Plan. It is just, Sorry, Mike. No, no, no. It, and what's great is being in Arizona, and so I'm not far away, you know. But 
you know, I've got antelope house tours uh, definitely written down. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, he, it's just amazing. And that he is, uh, you know, Adam and his, you know, going back generations are from Antelope Canyon. You know, he'll show you, show you where he lived, where he grew up and where he swam. And I had a great apple off one of his uh, family's trees back Very there. Cool. As you dug into the history part, and it, this may be a, a dumb question, as you initially doing the history part before you spoke to Adam, did any of the history, was there a conflict between what was written and what was, and then Adam said, like, did you go, hmm, this was not driving like it should be? Or was everything? Which, yeah, like, I wouldn't want to characterize it as like Adam versus the world. You know, the truth is there's lots of primary documents that make very clear what happened. Um, and yeah, I, there was a reason I wrote the book is because the other books, um, I didn't think it told the story. I mean, I was interested in this counterfeiting operation. I'm a crime yeah. reporter and I go, okay, prison camp counterfeiting operation that was done to save people's lives and, and feed them. That's fascinating. I want to get into that. And as I started to do that, I need to understand more about the war, the surrounding context. Why were they in Bosque Rodondo? What happened? And I, you know, I read pretty much all the books out there on it. Um, and a lot of them, it didn't add up. You know, they, right. they continue to support the Carlton narrative. But if you look at the primary records, it just falls apart. It becomes absolutely clear from the, the correspondence that um, the Americans did this to get them out because they imagined there was a lot of gold there. It had nothing to do with being kind of a protective police action, which is how Carlton phrased it at the time. It's striking because it makes me wonder if, like, you know, we see Russia invading Ukraine and, and, you know, saying, oh, there's a, you know, the story Putin's given as Nazis. We've got to go get these Nazis, which, you know, to all of us here, it seems preposterous, right? But here it is 150 years later in America, and most people still buy the story that, um, that the Americans had to move the Navajo because they were raiding. And it's, it's a lie. It's a lie that Carlton concocted. Um, because he wanted to create a vast mining colony. Um, the thing about Carlton that's fascinating is he was there by an accident of history too. He had been recruited to, um, to head out to California to raise volunteers to fight in the Civil War for the Union. And, um, he is, had, California was a great place to go in the 1860s if you wanted soldiers because it was filled with men who had no families who would come out to do mining and were highly mobile. And um, so they assembled a, a, an entire division out of the California column, about 1,500 soldiers who are also miners, most of them. And they headed out to New Mexico to intercept Confederates that were um, Henry Sibley and some other uh, and, and the Confederate armies that were invading New Mexico. And they headed out. They did some prospecting along the way as they crossed the desert. And then when Carlton got to New Mexico and the, and the Confederates were repelled, he was put in charge of the area. So here you have this man who's got an army of miners behind him, and he's sitting in the exact same building, the Palace of the Governors that the Conquistadors who had established years before in their quest for gold, centuries before. And he fell under the exact same delusion that somewhere out there was gold, greater than the mineral wealth in California. That's how he pitched it to the army. In fact, the, very, the night before the United States launched the attack, Carlton wrote the, the army chief of staff promising great wealth and, uh, you know, this new El Dorado. And it was all in his imagination. This is so crazy. Crazy. If you're wondering who we're talking to, and, and Matt will add additional information. We're talking to Matt Fitzsimons, he is, has authored the book and researched the book, The Counterfeiters of Bosque Redondo. What's, what did I leave off the end on that? Uh, yes, that was great, Mike. Thank you. It's Bosque. The Counterfeiters of Bosque Redondo, Slavery, Silver, and the U.S. War Against the Navajo Nation. Slavery, Silver, and War Against Navajo Nation. Um, did you have a moment where you're researching the book. You said that you'd read other books about it. I'm but, sorry, Mike, you clipped out for a minute. I couldn't okay. hear you. What did you say? So was there a moment where you wrote, where you were researching the book, 
researching the history to put the book together, knowing that you've read some other ones out there where you went, oh my God, like a eureka moment, like, holy crap. Yes. Um, Well, really, I want to give a shout out to another source of mine who was hugely helpful. Um, And that's Patrick Naughton. He's a, he's a U.S. Army officer and a U.S. Army historian. And I had come across a paper he had written, I think, in 2018 for the U.S. Army, uh, one of the U.S. Army war colleges. And it was assessing um, one of the first U.S. expeditions into Navajo country. And he had a lot of stuff in there that was very relevant to me. And I reached out to him and said, OK, I'm looking into this. And I talked to talked to him. And it was Patrick who said, hey, uh, you should take a look at the slavery uh, take take a look at the role of slavery and setting this whole thing up. And so I started to do that. And that was really where the light bulb went off, Mike. That was where I realized um, that something crucial had been missed. Um, that if I, I, as I began to look deeper and look at not just the war against the Navajo, but unwind the 20 years before that from when the Americans first arrived in New Mexico territory, I began to realize that slavery was fundamental to the whole story. It was the slave system had begun under Spain and accelerated under Mexico rule, but it actually reached its zenith during the first 20 years of American occupation. And numerous Americans, one of the first Navajo agents, Henry Henry Dodge and and uh, other folks who were out there, they tried to warn Washington that if we don't address this slave problem, we're, there's never going to be peace. And um, and it just fell on deaf ears. Slavery was obviously a giant issue throughout the country at the time. It was splitting the nation apart, um, another form of slavery. And so, um, so for a whole slew of reasons, American officials in New Mexico territory turned a blind eye to the indigenous slave system there. And... I realized that was the thing that was missing for most of these other books, which to me is a giant lapse. I, to not look at the role of slavery in the run up to the long walk, to me is like not looking at the role of rockets and getting to the moon. I mean, it's fundamental to how the whole thing happened. So, God, it's just, I, I got like, I'm picturing all of this in my head. Um, let's explore a little bit more about. Gosh, this is going to be a touchy subject about the slavery and about the man who you mentioned. Uh, I got it written down. Uh, Herrera, Herrera Gal Gadito. Gal Gadito. Yeah, Herrera Del Gadito. The Herrera hero Gal, the Gal Gadito. Um, Talk about so, that. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was waiting for you. Go ahead. No, talk about, expand on that, about how the silver coins and stuff were being made to free the slaves. Is that correct? Uh, well, no, not, not, not silver coins. Um, he, what it was, was he, he again, was one of the first silversmiths. And, um, and they were working silver. They, I think they were primarily using Mexican pesos back then. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. wasn't really on the scene in the 1850s. Um, but he was also a blacksmith, I think, you know, working with iron. Um, Herrero Delgadito actually is Spanish for skinny little blacksmith. Oh. His, um, his Navajo name, or at least the last of his Navajo names, was Asidisani, and that means um, old pounder. Um, pounder kind of being the reference to a smith. Um, so he, he was one of the smiths, and, um, and they had, um, you know, it had been engaged in that as a trade. It actually had been building up, acquiring some wealth and prestige prior to the war with the U.S. Um, and then after he surrendered, after he finally surrendered and, and they were filled in there, um, the counterfeiting operation was not silver, but they were using, they didn't have any silver at Bosque Redondo. Um, you know, they were prisoners. They didn't even have food to eat most of the time. Um, but they, um, but they were, you were able to use the blacksmith shop with tin and with iron and things like that to be able to fabricate these ration cards. And the ration cards were the things they, they handed to the soldiers in order to get their food. Um, the freeing of the slaves, that came out actually prior to that. That was when Carlton was trying to get him to go out and compel or talk, convince the other Navajo to surrender and to go to Bosque Redondo and leave their land. And um, feeling was hopeless, seeing all their food stores destroyed and winter coming on. 
Um, Delgadito agreed, but he agreed on one condition, and that was that the, the slaves would be freed. And and they did. They freed 95 slaves, or well, at least they released them from the settlements and took them to Bosque Redondo. But that was a small drop in the ocean. Um, it's estimated that it, based on Catholic church records, which which are the surest way to track slavery because most of the slaves were baptized, um, there were probably about 2,000 or more women and children enslaved during the 1860s. And when you consider that the best estimates for the population of the Navajo Nation at that time was around 14,000, you can understand just what a huge huge number of people that is virtually every family was probably losing someone um and for the most part the americans ignored it i do focus to a large to some degree on on talk about a, another colonel in the army um colonel sam tappan he actually knew carson they served together fighting the confederates at a pass and carson even presented tappan with a with an engraved cavalry saber afterwards to commemorate the victory um but when it came to indigenous slavery, they were, it couldn't be more different. Um, you know, Carson participated in it. He held Navajo slaves himself, he and his wife, and, um, and he weaponized it during the war with the Navajo. By contrast, at that exact same time, Colonel Tappan was up at Fort Garland in Colorado, and um, he was doing everything he could to end the slave trade. He was writing Washington. He was saying, this is unbelievable. We've got, we've got uh, to paint a picture for it, he described a situation where 200 men headed out from Colorado, heading down to Navajo country to abduct women and children. The strategy was they would go out in these raiding parties, um, ranging from a dozen to hundreds of men, and they would find small bands that they could overpower, and they would kill the men, and they would take the women and children captive. And the U.S. government turned a blind eye. Um, Carson's second in command, Captain Albert Pfeiffer, like Carson, he had before the war been an Indian agent for the U.S. government. And um, at one point, he he there was a report of him watching a slaving expedition heading out to Navajo country. And a couple weeks later, he saw them come back. And when they came back, they had 23 children in captive. And, and Pfeiffer did absolutely nothing about it. I'm, I'm lost. I mean, there's, it's yeah. like yeah. when you're telling the story and, and for the person, they've been listening to my podcast for a while. I, I stare at the phone and sometimes I close my eyes cause I'm so, I'm so into the storytelling that I, I forget. It's sometimes. a lot to absorb and it's well, so different than I think what the picture we've, we've been given. Right. But you know, the thing that's striking, Mike, that's amazing is the resilience. I mean, despite this, I mean, imagine the odds. You're, you're, you Imagine you're a parent and um, and you've got the whole world rushing in at you. You've got the U.S. Army coming at you. You've got other um, nations, youths in particular, coming at you. And you've got these slave raiders everywhere pouring in, taking advantage of the war um, to grab as many women and children as they could to sell off. Um, it's just a nightmare. And yet people survived. They, they survived not only that, but internment at Bosque Redondo. And that's what's striking. And, you know, in the book I, I go into too, I, there's great transcripts of meetings that were held at Bosque Redondo and hearings. And so you get to hear Delgadito speak for himself and you get to hear Barboncito and Ganado Mucho and, and Manuelito and all these amazing leaders and um, what comes through is even even years into their imprisonment, these people are strong and standing up for themselves and never abandoning hope that they could return home, never giving it up. And, they, and that's what they achieved. That's the remarkable thing about this is in 1868, they succeeded in going home. It was the first time in American history that the U.S. government had forcibly removed an indigenous community and then allowed them to get back to their land now it wasn't all of their land it was much smaller than the country they left in 1864 um at that point it didn't even include any of the four sacred mountains that are kind of marked the boundaries of navajo country um but but it was theirs and it was a start and in years to come they negotiated with the u.s government several expansions to that territory 
And, and Del Godito, he lived to see most of me. He lived to be a very old man. Um, like, like many silversmiths, he ended up going blind. <laughs> but, um, but he lived to be quite old and, and to see many of these changes happen. And he lived to see the, um, the explosion of silver and turquoise in the years following Bosque Redondo. Um, these smiths who came out of the blacksmith shop where they had been applying their skills to keep people alive, once freed, were able to turn those exact same skills towards art. And that's when we begin to see the introduction of turquoise and other stones into the silver. And, you know, you look today and you think, it's hard to imagine in the Southwest without these designs, without without Navajo silver and without the weavings. Mm-hmm. And um, it's such part of the fabric of the Southwest. It's um, it's striking to think how close we came to losing it um, and what it took to keep that here for, for the people. Your, your book came out in July, correct? July 2022? Yes, correct. Did... Did the book come out and then did it create any of a stir? Like, did people who read it say, oh, I never knew? Or have people from on the reservation read it and said, thank you for telling a more truthful story? I mean, was there any positives or were there any negatives? Um, It's been really great mike i was kind of worried you know i mean we live in this time where you know everything people want to just politicize everything and it's it's just it gets in the way of communication and just honest discussion a lot i think and i I was a little worried about getting i might get swept up and all that but it's been great i mean it's been amazing yes there is a difference in reaction for navajo people there are a lot less surprises in the book you know Mm -hmm. um the Diné, as they call themselves, they, they've heard this, you know, it's, it's, it's not news to them. Um, but, um, but for a lot of Americans like myself who grew up, uh, not having the benefit of the oral histories and just having to rely on the books we have in school and the movies, um, I think it was a surprise, but the reaction's been great and there's growing awareness. I mean, again, you know, the, it's not like the, the U.S. Army has long acknowledged that this was a disaster and a, and a huge mistake. Again, you know, one of my central sources is, is the U.S. Army historian. Um, and I gave a presentation up at Fort Garland, Kate Carson's old uh, headquarters, and I had a gentleman from the U.S. Cavalry Association there. And he was wonderful. He came up to me afterwards and we talked. And, and so it was great. Um, so it's been, it's been wonderful on all, on all fronts. I gave a talk in Santa Fe last month at the, um, New Mexico Museum of Art. And I did, when we were doing questions at the end, I did have one gentleman who stood up and goes, well, you know, I, I read Hampton Side's book on Kit Carson. I read this and that. How come I haven't heard any of this stuff before about <laughs> the slavery and, you know, and, um, you know, I don't know. That's a good question to ask the other authors. Um, but, um, but I do think there's, there's some new information. Um, but again, I, hopefully because of the fact that so much of the book, I, I excerpt directly from, you know, Carson's own letters, Carlton's own letters. I think people, um, are able to approach it and, and see, see for themselves and make their own judgments about it. Well, I mean, it's like, Writing about pulling a tooth. Who wants to write about pulling a tooth when we know it's painful? So we just make it part of life. Um, talk to us. Tell us about the story of the book cover because it's really uh, an amazing yeah. book cover. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Mike. I'm, the connection clipped out a little bit. Oh, tell um, us about the I, book cover. Yeah, I hear you now, though. Yeah, the book cover. So thank you for asking about that. I actually picked that book cover. I was hoping they'd use it. They, then my publisher, um, the History Press, Arcadia, I should mention them, um, they, um, they had control over the cover design, but they were very gracious and they let me weigh in and I had all kinds of thoughts. Um, but I really liked that image. And your audience, being especially educated and astute about these things, will look at the photo and probably catch me. It's anachronistic. Um, it shows a black and white photo of a Navajo silversmith at work inside is Hogan um, hammering away. And it's a wonderful photo from the National Archives. I was able to zoom in to such high quality that I could actually see that it, he was using 
pesos that he's hammering. That's how, how high resolution it is. But it's out of time. It's a photo from probably, I'm gonna, I think the early 1900s. Um, and there's one visual talent there that your audience will recognize. And that's way in the back. If you look, there's a gun belt curled up. And, um, you know, a gun belt wouldn't, wouldn't be around in the 1860s. So that's a bit of a tell. Um, but what I love about that image is it shows a Smith at work and it shows industriousness and, um, and, um, determination. So that's what I love about the photo. So I have a, I have usually a couple of questions usually as we're, cause we're approaching 40 minutes, 41 minutes already. I have a couple of questions that I'll usually ask, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on one. Eric will know the question because he recently posted, he posted it in the journal. Um, if you were to get in a time machine and go back to the periods that are written in your book and witness an event or be there or see something, if you could get in the time machine, where would you go and what and why? Uh, for my book, any any moment in the story. Yeah. Um, or, or you could make it personal, and you could say, "I'd like to go forward," or "I'd like to go back." If you could get in a time machine, you know, where would you go? What a great question. What a great question, Mike. Thank you. Um, so I'll tell you, I tell you where I'd go. I'd go to June 1868 and I would, um, I would, it'd be a tough choice before between the beginning of June. Cause that's when, um, Sam Tappan, who I mentioned, one of the army officers, one of the few army officers who had been trying to end the slave system and general William T. Sherman showed up at Bosque Redondo as peace commissioners to negotiate a treaty. And they, um, they spent the next several days negotiating with Barbancito, Delgadito's brother. And, um, and there was talk at the time of moving the Navajo even further east. And, um, Barbancito, of course, made this impassioned speech of why they wanted to go home. And it won over Sherman. And by all accounts, it was actually quite emotional. And I would have loved to have seen that because here's the man who literally said war is hell. Right. Sherman's march to Georgia. And um, and he was moved to the point of agreeing and doing what had never been done in U.S. history before. And that was allowing the indigenous nation to return home. So I would have loved to have seen that. But the thing I would have liked to have seen even more was a couple weeks later. A couple weeks later was when they actually left Bosque Redondo and returned home. And there were so many people, over 7000 people. Um, that they formed a line, Mike, that was 10 miles long, 10 miles long. Imagine that marching, marching back home after over four years of internment and returning to their land. Supposedly when they, when they came into view of the first of the sacred mountains, many began to cry, weep and sing. So I think that's the moment I would like to have seen go to if I could. So then you ask, you kind of had another one, you kind of asked, you asked the question back to me and I'll ask it back to you. If you were to get in a time machine with free range to go over anywhere you'd like to go, where would it be? Yeah, I'd probably, I guess, I guess I'd probably pick that same time. I guess that, you know, obviously this is a big focal point. It's been a uh, center of my attention for a couple of years now. And so I think I'll, I'll pick that same moment now that I've got it in my head. It's hard for me to let go of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I if somebody had a tether heel, you? there'd be a lot of things I'd like to see. Like, you know, I'd like to go back in biblical times, you know, and see, you know, That's Jesus great. as a young boy, speech, you know, talking at the at the the open mall, the open shopping center. I can't think of what the name is, but you know, I'd like to see that moment. I'd like to go back and see my dad in high school. I don't know why. He's been gone. Oh, for about, sure. He's gone yeah. like six, six or seven years. He's been gone seven years, and so I'd like to, I'd like to go back and see what my dad was like in high school. Oh yeah, that would wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, I'd love to see my grandfather as a young man. Yeah, my granddad too. That'd be another good one. So, so have you got anything new that you're working on 
Because I can't imagine that now that you've got the research writing bug that you're going to be like, nope, I'm going to stick with the greatest book I've ever read, ever wrote. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I've got a few things I'm looking around. It's, it's, this this area, so I'm, I'm a reporter, right? And, I, and a reporter likes stories that haven't been told. And what a reporter likes most of all is stories that, people don't want told <laughs> and I, th- I think there's a lot of those in the history of the west um i think i think it's we were, we've been presented with accounts from one side and i think a lot of other um angles have been left out and i find that really intriguing particularly because i think you can see so many through lines to issues of us today um you know we're going to be a lot of the issues for example you go come into land management and the government's ability to tell people what they can do with the land and what they can't. Um, and, you know, that seems like a thing worth, worth thinking about um, nowadays as we move into the era of climate change. And, um, you know, there's a certain desire to be able to go after certain minerals to use in our electric car batteries and, and things like that. And so I think some of these issues um, from the past are relevant today and instructive. So so there are some things from from um the history of the west that i'm pursuing right now i'm really interested in the livestock production program and the, the 1930s and 40s during the dust bowl era when mm-hmm. the u.s government decided that the navajo had too many sheep and went and killed about half of the sheep in the navajo nation over a period of years um causing a great deal of turmoil i think that's an interesting period um and that was largely driven by um progressives who came in and were concerned about the environment um and you know thought they were doing right thought they were doing um you know they had good intentions but i think it's an excellent story where um you can look and see how good intentions can go horribly awry if um if it's mixed with arrogance and ignorance well i figured as much i've interviewed other researchers and historians who say as they're working on their main goal, their main person, or their main story, all these other little people will show up and they'll set them off to the side and in little files on their laptop or their computer. And then they'll be like, holy crap, I got like a whole bunch of stuff about this guy that I wasn't even expecting to get. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing. And, you know, it's also there are so many great books out there. I mean, this area of Western history. I mean, I, you know, I'm, why am I telling you, you've interviewed all the, all the best writers out there. Um, and there's just so many great stories. And that's been one of the cool things. It's not so much for, you know, not just me being interested in something I want to look into, but it's exposed me to all this other work and all these great stories that are being told um, and really providing new angles. It's, it's fascinating to see some of the names that we know from growing up that were kind of legendary um, being looked at again in new ways. And, and I think sometimes giving us a, a fuller and more human picture of the people too. So it's, it's a cool area to be writing in and to be connecting with people and hearing about all that. We got about, about six minutes left. What should we talk about? Well, <laughs> here's, here's what I'm going to ask you. Your your book was a controversial subject. You would agree? Yes. Um, yeah. Well, it's uh, yes, absolutely. It's a tough. It's tough. Right. And I'll say too for readers, I'll warn them. The first couple, you know, I parachute readers directly into the slave system first in the Spanish period, and then the Mexican period, and it's tough going. I've had readers um, tell me that you know they've become upset, they've cried, um, but it does. It does. I think ultimately turn into a story of. Um, of extraordinary strength and resilience on the part of the Navajo and Mescalero Apache prisoners. Well, and that that's leading up to my question because it is a tough subject to to write about and to talk about and to share the truth. Was at the end when you wrote it and you put it all together, you send it off to your publisher. There's maybe maybe some rewrites or whatever, or it's perfect, whatever it is. Right? Was there an ultimately a takeaway? Was there something that at the end you were hoping that the reader takes away something, something that sticks with them? So when they put the book down, they just don't go, well, what's the next book to where it sits in their heart and in their mind and they dwell on it or they think about it or they say, I've got to research more. Was there, was there a takeaway in your book? Right. Um, 
Mike, it clipped out there. I couldn't hear the very oh. end, but um, oh, yeah, now I hear you. Okay, great. Yes, thank you. Um, well, I guess you know one thing is it's 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 an odd little book, right? It's, I mean, I get into the history of silversmithing, I get into war and slavery, so it's this weird combination of things. But um, I think what the biggest impact it had on me, I was just out the Heard Museum last week for their annual Native Art Show, and um, I was seeing some friends, um, some. Um, different artist friends who were exhibiting their stuff there. Um, and I got to say, it's like, it's amazing to me when I see the art here today and the traditions and that they're thriving. And I, it, I'm filled with this profound awareness of how, what it took for that to still be here, the people and the traditions and the culture, um, because huge attempts were made to wipe it out. And so it's given me this deep appreciation for how lucky we are and how fortunate we are that there were people like Delgadito, Barbancito, Manuelito, and all the men and women whose names we don't know who managed to survive this apocalyptic period and survive, not only survive, but come out and profoundly shape the region in which we live and all the, you know, everything we enjoy about the Southwest. Well, if you're wondering who we're talking to, um, you're talking. We're we're talking with Matt Fitzsimons. Uh, he's written a book called "The Counterfeiters of Bosque Redondo: Slavery, Silver, and the War Against the Navajos." I got that correct, right? Yeah, uh, the slavery, silver, and the U.S. War Against the Navajo Nation. There you go. And um, uh, and and I apologize. I I honestly I usually focus just on the main the main part of it, the counterfeiters of Bosque Redondo, because the lettering was so big and so profound. Uh, and the picture, the picture is just mind-boggling. Uh, you can find it on Amazon uh, for around 22 bucks. It's 160 pages. You could probably find it at booksellers near you. And the only reason I, we push Amazon, if you're in Europe or Australia uh, or, or someplace where shipping is expensive and you can't get to a... Uh, you know, you can't get to a bookstore to find it. You know, go to Amazon because it's got a, it's got, you can see the cover. You can, you can read a little profile, a little blurb about it. And I urge you to get this one. It's, it'll be a great read. Of course, I want to thank, thank my, you so much. It's also, if people oh, like yeah. independent bookstores, they can get it at oh, bookstore.org too. Um, so, and or Barnes and Noble or wherever. Walmart, I'm excited Walmart has it. Oh, Walmart has it. Yeah, awesome. I was excited about that. I've seen it on some Japanese websites too, where I couldn't read any of the description. It was really neat to see my book cover surrounded by a bunch of Japanese writing. <laughs> that Very was fun. Cool. Well, and and I want to thank my again my second family over at the Wild West History Association. You can find out about them at wildwesthistory.org. And we have the Roundup coming up in July in San Antonio, Texas. And you can find them on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Anything before we go? anything i just want to thank you mike it's been oh. so fun talking to you and really neat to be on this I, I love your podcast and it's just really cool to be added to your your village so thank you well the check is in the mail for that one bud i appreciate it we'll, we'll have to send you a little something thank you you're welcome all right thank you all right guys until next time safe travels and we'll see you soon